Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, Sue, I'm happy to be back with you in the studio recording together. We've had several recordings, which are great guests. I've loved that, but... It's also really fun to be back and just getting into the basics with you and I. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. My brain is kind of popping and exploding with so much that I want to talk to the audience directly about. And I'm really happy to do this. We're going to take a little bit of a wide lens on what modern attachment actually is, what we mean when we say it, and bring folks, if you're new to the whole thing, we'll kind of bring you along with us. But if attachment is something you're familiar with, you know, we always try to deliver no matter what level you're already at. So that's fun to do. So you and I often on this podcast, we talk about modern attachment. I don't know that everybody really understands what we mean by either of those words, really, but particularly together. So we're not talking about that. We're not talking about Sears and the early form. Tell us what we are talking about. We actually have a whole podcast where we really pulled apart some of the myths around attachment, but just very quickly. So we basically have 70 years of interdisciplinary research that goes back to the 50s. And up until mid 90s, there was kind of a block of incredible data. Attachment theory is, I think, the best, the most complex and validated theory of human behavior it incorporates both biology and neurobiology and also psychology and the sciences of psychology. So sometimes people ask us, our patrons sometimes will say, you know, like, is this our ideas? Is this just a good idea? Is, just, is this just kind of the next theory? And what we have to tell you is that it's not at all, that it's actually hard science. It's science and theory together. And what's really cool is that no matter kind of where you begin to approach it, whether it's from law or genetics or psychology or anthropology, that fortunately it all kind of begins to point in the same direction. It helps validate and so that we know, okay, what we're talking about is really solid. It's firm. It's on firm ground. So this is not just somebody's good ideas. This is the real deal. And the research starting way back then has just been added to and added to and expanded and deepened. And that is what we love is the journey of how it's been deepened into the neurobiologies and how we bring it into the modern aspects that are important to us. 
Some people that are listening will be familiar with Bowlby. This was initially Bowlby's theory. He was a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist together. So from the get-go, it was both a psychological theory and it incorporated biology, which is really cool. As a matter of fact, part of where this came from was research on Reese's monkeys and on geese. You guys may be familiar with Harry Harlow and Conrad Lorenz. They were looking at animal bonding and animal attachment. And then this theory came out of that. Again, Bulby was inspired by these other folks, but then it got more developed. So we have Mary Main, we have Mary Ainsworth, we have Patricia Crittenden, and a whole, whole, whole lot of other folks that have looked at it from different angles that have really validated this over time. So that's kind of the first chunk, as we say. And that's where you usually think of it with the four quadrants of preoccupied and avoidant. And, and it was initially infant research. Right. It was basically much started on infant research and how a child attaches to the primary caregiver, often the mother, and a lot of research related to how they noticed that attachment and then how that attachment carried on in different aspects of the child's development. So then in the 90s, there was an explosion of neuroscience. And Alan Shore, I think, was the first person that would talk about a new paradigm of attachment. He talked some about modern attachment theory. And what he was meaning was really incorporating the hard sciences that was validating the original ideas. So that's really cool. There were a few tweaks that we noticed that was a little different, but the general gist of it is that basically that the attachment system was shaping your biology, and that that's how the whole thing began to operate. And by really, really going back to the body and to, you know, our nervous system and how our nervous system responds to stress, really incorporating that from a literally a physical standpoint, that's kind of another layer, I guess you would think of it, right? Right. In a physical standpoint, I think it so much of our thinking along the way was nature versus nurture, nurture versus nature. And we start growing with neuroscience on it, like the big ant, that our genes and our biology that we're born with impacts how we engage and attach. And how we engage and attach impacts the development and the manifestation of our genes and how our neurology develops. So the importance of the integration of those two sciences, I think, from that point on is, of course, to us as neuro-nerds, really fascinating. Here's just one example of a tiny tweak that the science, again, the last 20 years, that the science really elucidated a little better. So we know that it's all about the primary caregiver. It's again, as you said earlier, Ian, it's typically the mom. It doesn't have to be the mom. This is not gender-based. It's anybody with a healthy functioning orbifrontal right brain that can basically read the baby's nonverbals accurately and kind of intuit what's needed accurately and respond. So that's genderless. <laughs> that's a, it's been a big debate. Some people even talk about, you know, what's the role of fathers with attachment and things like that. It really has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with having a primary. So it's all right brain to right brain, because remember that when we're born, we don't have language. So our brain, one of the cool things about it is when we're born, it literally doubles in size in the first year. And there's millions of miles of synaptic connections within a baby's brain, which is crazy. Dan Siegel talks about that. 
So what's happening is we're learning incredibly fast. I think there's something like new synapses are forming. Basically, they're the connections in your brain cells. Think of it like a root of a tree when you see leaves reaching for the sun and you have the main stem and then the branches come off of that and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and they're all sort of reaching Think of that like a neuron. The neuron is like a tree and underneath it, it has the same thing, it has a deep root system. So what's happening and it's pulling in nutrients. So all this magic is happening within this tree. Well, that's like one neuron and there's bazillions of them. <laughs> and then we look at when a tree touches another tree, they're sending energy to each other, talking about the brain. So basically that's how early learning begins to form these, what they call neural nets. So for those of you that can't see Sue right now, <laughs> she's showing. I'm gestulating. <laughs> and one of the things you can see is you can imagine her two hands outstretched together and towards one another. And what she's showing in that is synaptic connections. And I love how you're putting just how much is developing in the infant's brain based on this attachment experiences and based on the experiences with the primary caregiver. And through those experiences, those connections can be stronger and stronger and stronger, or they can also fade away because if there's not enough stimulation happening in certain areas of the brain, then those synaptic connections that are prepared may not develop and others will. And how those interactions happen from actually in utero, you mentioned the brain is growing for the first couple of years, but in the last trimester, especially the brain just fires in growth. And it is based on this immediate primary caregiver, often the mother, but not always, and how those interactions happen in utero and throughout the first couple of years of life really dictate how much neurofiring and in what direction. Right. It's experience dependent. Right. For better or worse. So when it goes well, it's like a critical window. And when it goes well, you're always going to have it. And when it doesn't go well, this is part of what Anne and I focus on a lot is that doesn't mean to hang up your coat and you're done. It means that there's work that we need to do and it's very possible to do it, but we can have new experiences that do turn back on like um, regulating stress and things like that. But we sometimes we have to actively really work on that and learn them. And that's a lot, again, what we talk about on the podcast. The thing that is so important to us at Therapist Uncensored is the hopefulness. So these things if it goes well, it goes great. If it doesn't, you have things that don't develop that need to be developed or maybe have overdeveloped to prepare you to watch for things more in a vigilant way. But the hopefulness is this continues throughout your lifetime. This isn't just learning that happens in the first three years of your life and then there you are, right? That's the crux of what we love to talk about on modern attachment. These growth and developments happen throughout your life. And it's all experience dependent. So this is not something you can think your way out of. It's not something that you can go get a self-help book and go in a closet and read and develop security. This has to be interpersonal. So going back to like that early attachment work, and this is where the new science came in, was that they realized that you're learning at the rate of 40,000 new connections a second when you're an infant. Can you believe that? 40,000 new connections are happening. And so what those new connections are doing is they're, it's basically what that is, is your brain's learning. And so your brain just bursts, literally doubles in size and everything that's happening, you know, the baby's a little sponge and it's learning. And guess what? It can't talk. 
and it can't tell you. So it's totally dependent on the right brain, the nonverbal processing. We might think of it as implicit or unconscious often, but it's less verbal. We should probably talk a little bit about right and left. Well, absolutely. And one of the things that crossed my mind is if I was a new parent out there and I'm hearing about all these new neurons and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, like, what am I going to teach them? But what's so important, what learning is happening then is not learning about reading, writing, and arithmetic and how to have critical thinking. Literally, the learning that is happening is, am I safe in the world? How do I get my emotional needs met, my physical needs met? And how do I learn to communicate and listen to our primary caregiver in order to survive. I mean, the learning is, is my environment safe? Is my caregiver safe? Am I safe? And then can I develop agency in the world? Can I learn to communicate? And then also a sense of worthiness. So the learning is an amazing part of learning, but it's a very deep kind of learning. You're totally right. It's body-based and it's emotional. It's not cognitive. This is all emotional learning. There's actually five specific things that happen in the first three years of your right brain. And again, this is where that the science now is overlapping into the theory where that we know this to be literally true. This is what the brain is doing in those first three years. So first of all, it's learning about the allocation of attention, what to pay attention to and what to let go and what not to pay attention to. And, and that particular one I think of when people have had more of a neglect situation, it's very frequent that you'll hear that there's not a lot of memory, but it's not because there's been some trauma that's blown out the fuse box. You know, it's not that kind of loss of memory. It's basically that it never gets stored. So in this allocation of importance or attention, you're not getting the bright, eyes when you come around the corner or the super fun birthday, like in order to store memory, we have to have some emotional valence to it, or it just has to be repeated over and over and over. But if you notice, if you think about your very early memories, often you have surprise or fear or delight, or there's something that told your brain, this is important learning, you better tuck this one away and keep it in long-term memory versus the zillions of things that happens to you that you forget about. Actually, maybe that's what's wrong with me these days. <laughs> I've, got, I've got things zipping by me. My brain is a Swiss cheese sometimes. So you were saying that about attention. Like, what are we going to See, attend to? I just lost my attention. <laughs> Let me, you saw you were speaking about the five parts and one of them is See, attention. You're so good. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. So another one that, again, this wasn't necessarily emphasized in the early work, but part of the modern part of it is it's about positive experiences of emotion. So we've always known that, or we've kind of speculated that it's about the parent's capacity to downregulate fear. But it's also now with the science, what we know is it's also about upregulating positive emotions. So it's when you're able to mirror like, oh, oh my gosh, look at what you, you know what I mean? Where that you're signaling the learning of positive states. And as you notice Sue's voice, that going up into what's called mother ease, she just instinctually <laughs> as a mama does that, but goes up into that really high pitched, excited voice. That is an instinct. That is not just Sue making a decision to do that. It's an instinct in us because what we have learned through biology is to communicate a sense of delight and then to mirror a child and to mirror that experience is communicating so much to their body. That sense of delight is communicating worthiness, safety, security. Think about what your body does even hearing Sue do that. 
And that's what happens to a baby's body. And then it learns to attend. Oh, when I do this, I get delight in my mama's eye contact and encouragement. And that's the learning that's happening. And it's neuro Wi-Fi. You haven't talked too much about Bluetooth. The Bluetooth. It's neuro Wi-Fi. Sue's communicating to that baby that it's worthy. And there's the attention and the connection that's happening. I think that's great. And what's important about that is it's not just that I'm making something important. It's I'm recognizing that they feel like it's important. Like they find their foot, you know, and they're delighted about finding their foot. And so then you're amplifying their delight so that that way, what the baby's experience is, they can't think these words, but the feeling, the, the felt sense is that they feel understood. Or attuned to. Yes. Yeah, there's accurately a, attuned to. That's a beautiful thing to say, because what is accurate attunement? It's We speak about that throughout our podcast when we're talking about relationships, etc. This isn't just motherese, right? right? I was thinking about partners kind of talking to each other that way, or even pets. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, baby, come here. <laughs> well, I love that, because while we're talking about parenting and these early attachment experiences, you can hear the relevance to relationships and to engagement with older children and your partners and your siblings, that all of these dynamics are what goes into our body to help us feel secure in the world. And this is the core of it. This is the start of it. So that accurate attunement, I love what you just said, the baby finds the foot. We don't find it that necessarily in our adult world miraculous, but we see the delight in the baby and all of a sudden the connection. And you see that through the eye contact and the by watching the baby's face and then you match it. So you're attuning to the baby's delight rather than directing. And that's one of the most important parts of the early attachment experience. It also, what you're saying makes me think about how multidirectional this is. Here's a therapy implication that it's not just the mother acting on the baby and like making something delightful that isn't the mother's responding to the baby who's feeling delight. So it's a mutual encounter. And we've talked about it on the podcast before of like when, you know, when a dog comes in is wagging its tail, if another dog wags back, now you've got something going and you have that connection. But if you growl back or if you ignore them, then you're going to lose that contact. And pretty soon that wet tail is going to stop wagging. But the connection to therapy is that therapy this is an IPNB, interpersonal neurobiology approach to it, is that it has to be mutual at some level. It doesn't mean that it's even. We're not saying that therapists don't hold more power. We do. But the idea of a blank slate is a has gone. Is that a has been? Has been. (laughs) It has gone by and is now a has been. (laughs) And maybe not for everyone. There may be therapists that still sort of hold that. But that blank slate really has gone by the wayside in many ways because of what that does to our nervous system. Exactly. If you think about, you know, that's flat face mother. Yes. And so it is true that you'll learn a lot about someone's unconscious when you're not giving them any information back. That is true. But that isn't necessarily from our perspective, what heals, what heals is actually being able to make those connections. And so for therapists, generally, from a neurobiological standpoint, we encourage you, again, it's not tons of self-disclosure. It's not anything like that, but just to be aware that you are an active actor. And if you're in therapy, you know what I mean? That you get to wonder about the therapist. You get to want to know what's in their mind. What I would even say is what's happening in the room belongs to you. So if they're having a reaction, 
and they're not speaking about it, they don't have to share it with you, but I'm just saying you get to want to know what that is because that's good information for you to have. Like, were they actually bored? That would actually be helpful. It's data. And it affects your body. That's I think right. that's the, the really important aspect of that. It is bi-directional and it affects your, what happens with the therapist's face really does affect your body. You know, you mentioned the flat face and I was thinking, wait, where was that? I think it was in our course though. We actually play the flat face. We have a course, it's not me, it's my amygdala. But in there, we talk really deeply about this bypass and you can find it without our course too. If you go on and do flat face experiment, you will see, and we won't go into the details, the reaction in a baby's body when a mother is actually flat-faced and not engaging. And the important part is what happens neurologically to the baby's reaction. What happens neurologically to the baby's body to when they're engaged with a flat face and how much it impacts. And going back to the neurological connections, the neurons that can happen, that can really impact a baby's body. Yeah, it's really painful to watch, actually. It would be worth looking up. This is Edtronic's work fantastic infant research. But you were going back to the five. <laughs> going back to the five. <laughs> let's, so let's we've talked five. about, we've talked about allocation of attention. We've talked about the experience of positive emotions and amplifying positive emotions. Being able to, so in other words, if you're listening and you're someone who's not good at joy or doesn't quite trust happiness, thinks like, okay, where's the tornado that's about to come because things are too good. Those are things to think about related to early experience that for some people, joy and happiness is very easy and it flows very naturally. But if you haven't had that amplified and validated early, early on, this is the pre-three, three and younger. Or even maybe tamped down sometimes. Tamped. That's right. right. That's right. That may be one reason why joy brings you a little bit of anxiety. And a lot of people sometimes will come into therapy and go, why is it I actually get nervous that Why happier? can't I play? Exactly. Or when I start to feel joy, I immediately start to feel anxiety because it's going to go away. This may relate way down deep into the attachment experiences that delight may have been something that didn't get amplified or even got tamped down. Yeah, like sometimes this is this might sound weird, but it can scare a parent, right? depending on their attachment history. And again, this isn't moral. We're not talking about good parents and bad parents. We're really talking about their body too. This is a scary thought, but you know, the infant's first experience is the experience of the mother's unconscious because it's all nonverbal and it's all not conscious and there's no words. So when I think of that, that gives me chills. But okay, so we've got positive emotion. And then what we have known for a long time is decreasing negative affect. So basically it's fear. So being able to respond to fear and be comforting and soothing and protective of the baby. That's one of the developmental tasks, like mandates in that first three years when it goes well. I want to amplify that if I could, or really accentuate that it's the three years, right? This is, we're not just talking about infant in the first eight, nine months. And we think about that and we can't, we won't jump in now to gender differentiation here, but you know, that can happen where we have boys who are more tamped down historically about fear when they get older and they get to be, you know, two and a half. And we tend to historically tamp down boys more than girls with fear. Like you don't need to be afraid. You're fine versus tending to the fear and allowing the fear to be nurtured. So it's just an important thing for all babies, all young children, when they feel fear, one of our important tasks is to be able to soothe, not cut it off, not to shame it, not to disconnect it. And when you mention gender, I think you're meaning 
gender scripts, the way yes. that we're socialized from a gender standpoint, not so much the biology around that. Absolutely. Thanks yeah. for clarifying. Yes. Yeah. And then so the fourth one is the capacity to convey what's happening nonverbally, but also especially to read other people's nonverbals. So remember the five things that we're talking about. These are the developmental tasks in the first three years for your right brain. And if you have a good right brain other that's an adult, that's that's a fully functioning you know, at least decent, good enough, right brain, doesn't matter anything else, doesn't even have to be the parent. But if, if you have enough access, and if you connect, and then you attach to them, then these are the learnings that happen. And if these go well, this is how you're going to get secure attachment. What that means is that your caregiver, unfortunately, probably would have needed this themselves, right when they were young, that the person caring for them could feel the baby, like, you know, the idea and a feeling felt, right? It's not what someone says, it's not what they're doing, but you can feel felt. You can feel someone take you in and really get you. So one of the ways you can think of that is you can feel whether a social smile is real or not real. Our body can feel oh, that. Yeah. It's oh not, yeah, we detect that like that. It's not a decision. And, and we keep emphasizing the right brain because the right brain is the area that is the more social emotional learning. It's the part that really intensifies and takes in this information. And so the right brain is going to be able to immediately know whether it's a fake smile or a real smile without you even thinking. You can feel it in your or body. Or a fake laugh or a real laugh. Right, right. I mean, we're very reliable at being able to tell the difference. And what that has to do with is exactly what Anne's saying. It's the right brain. And the last one, the five, to get to finish that, is the morality. This is odd, maybe, but once we develop a really good right orbifrontal cortex, which is that's kind of the part that makes us human, it's the top, it's behind the eyes and the higher cortex. And by moral, I don't mean moral as in religion, I mean moral as in doing the right thing when no one's looking. Because that you're able to internalize other people and have empathy, that this is one of the things that promotes that versus, you know, the many ways that that can go off. <laughs> Right. And so that develops in the, believe it or not, it does develop in the first three years. It's not just the more, the, the lessons that you speak to them. It is their body's ability to feel empathy and connection. It develops care. And so the care of, I am cared for in the world and I develop care and safety. That is the core of a moral compass of caring for other people as we grow older. And it happens naturally if all goes well. I mean, that we don't have to make that happen. It will just naturally happen. David Elliott's work and Dan Brown, when they talk about the three pillars of attachment, one of theirs is cooperation. And what's interesting about this kind of in adult real life is a lot of times, say, for example, I have somebody in therapy and unconsciously, non-verbally, they're sending signals like they're late and they get there and they're kind of bothered to be there. Not that I've ever done this. <laughs> I know nothing Absolutely. about this, <laughs> but it's almost as if I went and got them and made them come. You know what yeah. I mean? They're like, yeah. what, what, you know, that's an implicit learning where that we're on our own and we don't even know to look to others to help us. So it's kind of a weird example, maybe, but does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're not even cooperating, like we're not cooperating, but we don't know we're not cooperating. So one of the first interventions is to begin to help the person become aware of ways in which they shut down stuff like that. Even like if you were to ask me a question and I and I were to say like, yep, that's good, yeah, fine, I'm good. It sounds like I'm answering, but I'm actually not. What I'm doing is I'm sending you a signal to lay off, like nothing to see here, move on. 
in the body, I think what you could hear Sue's voice when she's saying, yep, I got it. No, it's fine. You can hear the voice and in your own body. You can feel how without even knowing that it's a cutoff. It's a disconnect and it says nothing to see here. And so it's a cutoff from a relational engagement. And the core of our attachment system is to be able to feel our own sense of security enough that then other individuals are safe to engage with. So it is a relational system, not a single system. It's not like you are either a secure or insecure person in the world. It's not left only in one's body. It's an engagement with another person. So you have to have some security to go, ah, and to reach out to the other person for help is a sign of security, not a sign of insecurity. People really forget that sometimes. The most important thing that can happen in those early years is the baby is able to communicate effectively their emotional state and the caregiver is able to respond. Like that's kind of, if we're going to boil it down, Mm -hmm. that's a gist of it. And all of this happens without words and it's all body-based and felt sense. So again, let's apply that now to therapy or to couples or what have you. Like if you've told me something and I'm like, and you're not sure I'm listening and I'm like, I heard you. I I could repeat back word by word what you said, right? But does that help you feel better? Right. If I don't feel it, like you were saying earlier, a felt sense, it's not going to be a sense of integrated connection. That's right. So we're kind of weaving in this whole left and right integration. So what I was just doing, like a social laugh or a social smile where I'm doing it, it's rule-based, or even just then, I can tell you every word you just said is on the left side where it's very literal, logical, and I might be accurate, but the person's not going to feel any better. And probably all of us have had that experience in some sort of a relational dynamic, but I am listening. No, you're not. I can tell you that you said, and you're like, it doesn't matter. I don't feel heard. And that's why. So again, that's attachment research. And then we're overlaying the neurobiology on it. And so what we're saying about that is that early on, it's all right brain. That's why that, that early caregiver has to have a functioning right brain, particularly the orbifrontal, right orbifrontal cortex. And then as they get a little older, where there's more words and we're getting into then things like inhibiting behavior and stuff like that, then that's the left brain. And that's just as important. What we're saying, though, is it comes on later. So that's why that those really early years are super, super important. But it's not that emotion is more important than logic. It's that the ideal is that they go together. And so people who get uncomfortable if it's not reasonable, if it's not rational, (laughs) things like that. We overdeveloped that left side in order to manage all of this messy right brain stuff. Right. We keep saying that the caregiver needs to have a right brain development, a healthy right brain development. Oftentimes all of us have had certain things that have been amplified in a wonderful way and some difficulties. And so those get translated in how we parent. So maybe a child's intense anxiety or emotion makes my body scared because I'm not used to that, that too much emotions because of my own history might overwhelm me. So I might instinctually tamp that down, not because I'm not a wonderful parent, it's because it overwhelms my body. And so it overwhelms my body. So I tamp the child down and then it sends the communication to the child. Oh, intense emotions is not very safe. And yet logic is, logic is more safe. Look how much attention I get from my parents when, as I grow older and I can use logic. And so that can be more developed in in any one of us. You know, we're talking about some pretty deep emotional stuff. 
And we get calls pretty frequently, actually, to do therapy with folks, which is cool and thank you, and we're just not able to do that. However, we have partnered up with a really great online organization that does provide therapy. So if, if any of this is stirring you up, it just occurred to me to share more about this. So just real briefly, I want to kind of interrupt what we're talking about to tell everybody about BetterHelp. Yeah, BetterHelp is an online organization, and it's tough right now anyway. Most therapists are having to do, through COVID, online therapy, virtual therapy, and really learning how productive that can be. And BetterHelp is an organization that can offer therapy online, does offer therapy online. And one thing I love about it, you don't have to be in any location. Access is so important. And to get better help, you can be anywhere in the world and they can match you up with a therapist that could really be right for you. It's internationally based. They have multiple languages. It's GLBTQI friendly. You go to the website. And by the way, if you put in our code Therapist Uncensored, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com backslash Therapist Uncensored, you're going to get 10% off your first month. It's a lot less expensive than face-to-face individual care. So part of why we are partnering with them is that it brings access. We wanted to really provide access for more of our listeners that if you want, if you're feeling a little, if you've got the COVID blues, (laughs) couples issues, parenting trouble, if some of this quarantine stuff has stirred you up related to old traumas, anything like that, call them up. You fill out information about yourself. You get matched with a therapist. If you don't like the therapist, you can switch. So that's cool. Right, and you can have access both to weekly face-to-face online, but you can also text them during the week and you can do different kinds of chats, which kind of increase them. Right now during COVID, that's super important. And that is science-based, that therapy isn't just the once-a-week model isn't the end-all, that sometimes having that little bit of support, tech support, can actually make a real big difference for folks. One other quick thing, if you're a therapist and you're listening and you've got a couple of extra hours They're accepting applications right now, and uh, it would be a way to make some extra money, and you don't have to recruit patients, and you don't have a ton of paperwork. So you really just get to do what most of us love doing, which is providing the actual therapy and supporting people in a really hard time. And those of you, if you're a therapist, if you'll go to betterhelp.com and you'll go backslash uncensored underscore recruitment. That'll let them know that you heard about it through us, which will help us out some, but it will also tell them that you know about attachment and you know what I mean, that you're doing continuing education in a way. Anyway, we can get right back to the, I wanted to go to Bama after this. Well, right, because what we've been talking about is the early attachment work and the early attachment research that grew into then Alan Shore's work and and really important integration of the neurobiology. Shore, Siegel, a whole bunch of people. And then Siegel, absolutely, into, into adding neurobiology and the importance of integration. So let's continue to kind of upgrade it. What do we mean by modern attachment? And actually, it just made me think when we were kind of doing the pitch for BetterHelp, which again, we feel good about doing. Listener, it may have been a patron actually sent in a question and we're going to be doing more audience questions through this. So if you have a question, just go on SpeakPipe. It's speakpipe.com backslash therapist uncensored. And you can send us a voicemail and we will send you a voicemail back directly from either me or Anne, for sure. But her question was, in this time of online therapy, how do you practice from a more body-based interpersonal neurobiology standpoint, how do we translate that from in-person to on the phone, which is a great segue from BetterHelp and from online therapy in general back to the topic of 
kind of deep diving into the relational sciences. Well, and it's extremely important because I know that was probably my biggest struggle having to go virtual. I miss it. It sucked, didn't it? it? Oh my gosh. I miss the engagement just from going to get a client from the rating room and the engagement to sitting down and all the natural nonverbal and verbal communication that we have that makes our body feel safe and makes connections and is able for somebody then to sit down and open up to us about things that are deeply important to them. And we don't get that safety, that in-person engagement. We hear a lot about therapists being tired. And there's a reason for that. You know, we could see people all through the day and it would be fine. It'd be energizing even, but on Zoom or on these online platforms, it's exhausting. And the part of the reason for that is because we're seeing a pixelated image and no matter how fast it's going that, you know, where we can't tell that it's just pixels, you can see it when it glitches, but it's also glitching underneath our conscious awareness. So our brains are constantly filling in the gap, filling it in the gap, filling in the gap, filling in the gap. We don't even know it. Well, because also our brains are searching for squinting Meaning. eyes. That's right. And I, we search for all of these things in the faces just naturally, and we can't find it. So our brain's like, that's what you're meaning. It's like kind of ongoing, trying to fill in those gaps that we can't naturally see. And I really like you talking to about getting to the office, sitting in the office, being taken back, that greeting, all of those things, you know, we're doing without now. And somebody likened it to having like a homemade fresh blueberry muffin to one of those like boxes <laughs> that it's all preservatives and this dried squinchy <laughs> blueberries. Oh yeah, I know exactly. What you that mean. it's just not the same thing. And the the idea being that it's more artificial and you can feel it. And so that, that really matters. Let's talk about some of the things you can do. Well, I can say like I, uh, that was my initial response. And I have, since I haven't been doing that now for six months, I have other ways of being able to be engaging. Like you can see the environment that they're in, et cetera. Right. How many dogs have like poked their little heads or cats or kids? That's so true. I can, I, what I have found is that I've also have a little personal nature happening. Instead of somebody walking in my office who's been at work all day and I was already quaffed and looking great, I get to see people from their and pajamas. Their <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's actually added to a sense of humanness and a sense of connection. And I think most importantly, as we just talked about the flat face, it's super important to be able to have, first of all, the difficulties acknowledged and talked about. I miss sitting in the room with you. I say that because I really feel it. But also how important our face-to-face contact is. Eye contact, making sure you don't have a flat face, making sure that you're engaged in that way. Right. So we would recommend for therapists to embrace the differences rather than resisting them. And even, for example, as Anne was just talking about, like if they're looking out the window or, you know, want to show you something that I'm really encouraging people to just carry me around on their laptop or on their phone and like show me the stuff that they want to show me. You know, it's kind of like joining the resistance and we're not going to interpret it as resistance or acting out. It's so that's one thing. The other thing is to really be careful about your setup on your computer and and eye contact. I think the lack of direct eye contact is one of the very hardest things because even sometimes when they're looking at you, but they're looking to the side or we're looking at them, but they can't feel it. That's really huge. So I would take some time. The I looked into this a lot, actually. The idea is, and again, many of you probably know this by now, but if your computer's just above you and then you're looking directly at the screen, 
the person will more likely feel that you're looking at them. If it's to the side or below. You, you mean the camera? The camera. Yeah. The whites of your eyes show if you look to the side. So it feels like you're looking away. And even looking down, people can feel that a lot. The other thing is to be sure and get them to blow up your picture and their picture so that you're not doing side by side. You're doing one at a time so you can really, really zoom in. So what you're looking at is definitely you see them and you get as much eye-to-eye contact experience that you can get. I think another thing that therapists themselves need to think about is what does their background look like? Because our body looking, like you see their background, they see yours, and you want to promote a feeling of warmth. If you have a cold, white background and there's no plants or anything, our bodies pick that up. So creating a sense of warmth in your environment behind you is also really important. The other thing I've been aware of is that I'll explicitly say things like say their name and ask like, are those tears? Like you look a little bit, you know, and so basically more than I would in person because I could just get in a groove of feeling it is it's sometimes I make it more explicit and group is a whole other thing, but I do a lot of name calling so that people know who I'm talking to. So I might say, and I can see instead of just looking at you and saying it, So those are a few of the ways. And the other thing is all of this change has to be body-based. It's experience. So sometimes it's even just like you have to more consciously encourage the work that we're not going to just sit here and chat and no, you can't take me while you're driving. What we really want is to be more deliberate about working towards that emotional contact and directing people into their bodies while it's happening. It just... Those are a few things. I'm sure that if you're a therapist and you're listening and you have other ideas, jump on and share them on our Facebook group because this is something that we're all dealing with. Well, one of the things you mentioned is making sure to help them hold the space. One of the advantages when they show up in your office that space is really sacred and it's really easy to lose that because sometimes people can't, they don't have a room and they have to go hide in the front yard or the backyard and they may do it in movement. So help them find that space and make it really sacred and say, let's really make sure we can find a time or even there, how do we help you situate your body so that you can really be present? So I take a few minutes at the beginning to try to help the connection because sometimes people have to do it in the car because that's their only safe space that they can do it. And that's okay too. So just taking a moment to have that connection about the location, I think is really helpful. Yeah, I love that because sometimes people do need to be reminded of the importance because it's really they're taking time out for themselves. Yeah. And and that's some of the way that I think of it is like, don't short yourself. It's not about me. It's about this is our time together to focus on you. And so you deserve this parentheses. And just one other quick thing is I definitely I put it in my ears and I encourage them to use headphones too, because it's the brain has to work a little bit less hard when it's being delivered right into your ear versus when it's, you know what I mean, you don't have earphones and it's um, more tinny and it kind of bounces around the room and it's not as natural sounding as when you can really have a mic and have earphones. And just for summary about today's thing, I wanted to introduce Anne, part of our contribution to this idea of modern attachment. Is that okay to go in that direction? And I wanted to just share with folks this acronym BAMA. Right. And we've been talking about already the B and the A. Right. Okay. So <laughs> the Bama. that's right. So just quick summary. So we talked about that there was this chunk of incredible deep attachment work that has been done. And then there was this that focused layer. quite a bit on 
early attachment experience of the infant. And then there was this layer of a couple of, you know, decades now of the science that has been amplifying and fine tuning that work. So that's kind of sure talked about that as modern attachment. What we've done is we've added on this piece that takes all of that dense science and pulls it out and makes it hopefully usable and practical in real life. And examples of that are the spectrum that we've created. It's called the Modern Attachment Regulation Spectrum. That's in a different podcast. We'll link it. So yeah, the spectrum we've spoken about throughout the podcast and in our course, but just as a nugget about the spectrum, it's a way of being able to talk about and experience attachment where it's not so categorical. For those of us, it's like, am I, you know, in this category or that category, and you might recognize yourself in multiple categories at different times, depending on what's going on in the situation or in your relationship. So the spectrum is a way through colors in a diagram to be able to conceptualize that. I'm really actually quite proud of it because it also, it does integrate both unconscious working models, like kind of where we live if we're preoccupied or what we call that is red and blue and green and tie-dye is our version of it. We do that on purpose. And it's also, that's related to the hope part. In other words, that, yeah, you might lean red, you might lean preoccupied, you might lean a little anxious, but one, that's a state of mind. You don't live there. And secondly, that was an adaptive strategy. So it's not pathological. So everything that we do, we want to do it in a very positive, realistically positive description so that people aren't hearing this and feeling like, worse, <laughs> you know, and there's, it's very easy when you read, especially when you read the neuroscience to get super depressed because it's pretty powerful what those early experiences do to our brains. And when you're talking about trauma and neglect and you can see long-term effect, it's really hard. So Anna and I specifically, we really work very hard to pull out the hope and the practical application of what the science is in a way that is meaningful, you know, in day-to-day life. So the spectrum, as Anne's saying, it's a colorful little rainbow spectrum, and you can identify yourself where you land, and then you can see where people close to you are, and you can see how those interact. So that's the gist of that. That you don't live in one area, but you might visit one. (laughs) Much more frequently than the other. Right. But the importance of it being a spectrum is to recognize that it's movable. It's movable in the day, but it's also movable in your body as an attachment style through time and relationships. We've been doing a lot of talking about therapy. Therapy is a big part of being able to move, which we call towards the green, developing deeper sense of security in yourself and your relationships. And that's an active state. That's not something you either have security or you don't have security it's really something that's a very engaging thing to develop. And that that's what inspires our podcast, actually. That's really the whole gist of it. And I'm really actually quite proud of it. So part of what we're contributing is this notion of the fluidity of it, of the spectrum, and then the practical application of the hope of how to make these changes. And again, we'll link other podcasts that might help elucidate that for you. But going back to Bama real quickly, now that we've talked about all this, this will all make sense to you. But the B stands for... Well, let's start with the Bama is our own acronym, by the way. Just so if you're wondering what Bama means, Bama is an acronym that we have developed to help kind of relate this entire science in a process. Exactly. And again, you know, if you've taken the course, you'll, there's a whole section on this, but because it took us a long time to figure this out, actually, because you talk about attachment and then there's infant attachment, there's adult, there's infant attachment and adult attachment. And how do those relate to one another? 
Right. So BAMA stands for, the first one is biology. And again, now this will be more familiar to folks. So there's the biology and that's prenatal all the way through those first three years. Is And the biology, the B comes before attachment because it's already there, right? And then the A is attachment. And by that A, we mean infant attachment. And so what's happening there is the B and the A are affecting each other. So based on those experience dependent, in other words, based on your early experience, remember what we're looking for is the right brain attunement based on how that goes positively or negatively, you're affecting the biology of your whole stress response system. That's the HPA axis. Don't need to know hippocampus, pituitary, adrenal. What's most important is that you're shaping your nervous system and attachment and biology go, they're literally, now my hands are doing it again. They're, my fingers are intertwined. They're affecting each other. And then based on the B and the A, we get the M, which is maps. Well, those are the unconscious working models or implicit models. Right. And the models develop through those things and continue to develop through our childhood experiences. It's not that we are continuously impacted. It's not like we're just a sealed deal at three, right? But we start to develop, we call it maps, but it's also sort of models of how relationships are. And those are our maps of how we relate and how we continue to relate as we grow into adults. Right. It's like the software. So we're not aware that we're working with a model in mind, but we all have a, it's like an unconscious map where that we have expectations of ourselves and we have expectations of other people. And based on that model in the spectrum that we talk about, we have sunglasses because based on our model, we, we shape the world through our model. So for example, we have the, the sunglasses, we have assumptions and we have assumptions that when let's just give an example, we have an assumption, let's say you're a nine year old and you're going towards a group you may have an internal map, an assumption, do I, will I feel welcomed in that group or am I likely to be rejected in that group? You know, and as you grow up and you get into romantic relationships, you have inherent assumptions that are in you based on your early attachment, based on your biology, how your body is developed. You have these maps of what assumptions are you going to be easily rejected? Are you going to be overwhelmed by intimacy? And so you kind of keep it at bay. Those are what we call maps that are unconscious inside you. And the more aware you are of them and how much they lead you and impact you, the more you can shift it towards something you really want to live with. And then the A is adult attachment. And adult attachment is a whole different body of science. It's social research and it's related to the BAM, <laughs> but it's not exactly the same thing. But when you hear about, like, for example, Shaver's work and things like that, that's basically the adult attachment stuff. And so basically what we're looking at is that your attachment and your biology forms your maps, which then forms your adult relationships. And at any one of those letters, there can be interventions and we can work. And so therapy is trying to change your body, your experiences, your internal working map, your attachment system, and definitely, of course, your adult attachment system. So that's the deal. That's what BAMA is. And that's how it flows from the original attachment research, the science on top of that. These are examples of the clinical application. So I hope that we haven't lost people. What do you well, think? It's a, we, we tried to cover, we were very ambitious. <laughs> okay. So that's betterhelp.com backslash therapist uncensored. And if you are a therapist 
and you would like to pick up a couple of hours and make some money, go to betterhelp.com backslash uncensored underscore recruitment. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. If you haven't in a while, if you appreciate this content, please give us a rating and review. That's a great way to help us out and to help other people find the show. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 